Hello, I'm Daphne Whitmore, a member of the Free Speech Union. I'm talking today to Mark White from Pleberty, which is a left-wing free speech organisation in the United States. So hello, Mark, and welcome to this free speech podcast. Hi, Daphne. Great to talk with you. Thanks for having me. Oh, pleasure. Hey, can you, Mark, can you just tell us first off a little bit about Pleberty, um, like when it was set up and what are its aims? Sure. Pleberty is a U.S.-based nonprofit, and we were founded in 2015. Um, our original goal was to really just be a, a platform for long-form articles, um, different topics from a leftist perspective, but not exclusively leftist. And then uh, as time went on, we started becoming aware of how the winds were changing on the left and certain topics were becoming more and more taboo and some were even impossible to talk about. And what was really significant is when we started to see how activist groups in other areas were becoming more and more focused on identity politics than on their core issues. We saw that in um, an environmentalist group and in an animal activist group that people who were part of Plebity were involved in. And then I had my own personal family experience of cancel culture where a family member lost her job um, because of things she said on, on her personal Twitter account. So all these added up to some major eye-openers, I guess, and we decided to refashion Plebity and just focus on free speech, but free speech um, explicitly as a traditional core leftist value. And so that's basically it. That's our, that's our origin. Um, we created a free speech fund to help offer grants to people who might have been harmed for their free speech, regardless of whatever their specific ideology was. And we're at a pretty modest scale, but we've given away about 10,000 US dollars, I think about 17,000 uh, New Zealand dollars in grants um, as of now. And uh, so that mostly from small donations. So that's been great. And we're really hoping in terms of our aims, we're really hoping that there could be some kind of coalition of like-minded people on the left that could find each other and gather. That's, that's, that's kind of our real hope. That's great. Yes, and um, that's sort of how we 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 met online, didn't we? Because I'm also part of a left wing um, platform, and yeah, very much it feels rather solitary on the left defending free speech at the moment. Yet, the left of the past was at the forefront of defending free speech. I mean, there were definitely exceptions to that, and some of the left traditionally had been authoritarian and anti free speech, but. It, most of the the left movement was for free speech, I would say, and while the right of the political spectrum tended to be against free speech, so I'm sort of interested in in your your view, like what what's the basis for that classical left defense of free speech? 
Yeah, well, and as you described it, it's like the world has uh, turned upside down <laughs> because mm-hmm. literally without free speech, there there would be no leftist ideology at all. It would never have developed. I mean, the leftist ideas that grew out of the late 1800s, um, they depended on free speech. And the establishment powers were constantly trying to suppress that speech. And then since then, every single movement that would be associated with the left, the worker movements all around the world, um, the civil rights movement in the U.S., anti-war dissent in the U.S., starting with maybe Vietnam, um, including the war uh, against our invasion in Iraq, or pre-Civil War abolitionists. Everybody needed free speech. So it's always been the most marginalized, the people struggling against power who have benefited from free speech. So that the left has lost touch with free speech as a core value. It's, it's just astounding and hard to, hard to fathom. It is, isn't it? I mean, even, even if they just gave a half-hearted um, support, I mean, I think many people sort of in theory support free speech, but unless they're under pressure, don't value it quite as much. But, but the left... I think they, they tend to support speech that they like. Yes. <laughs> um, and then they find out that they don't really support it when they hear something that they don't like. Yes, yes. And that's a challenge. That's a challenge for everybody. So what, what, why do you think the left today has mostly turned against free speech? I mean, I mean, when we're talking about the left, of course, we're talking about self-identified left, not, not a movement that's really connected to the working class or those traditional struggles. But, right, exactly. Yeah. Um, well, I think, I don't know, that's a, that's a great question. Of course, it's super complicated, but uh, the way it looks to me is it kind of started in the universities. So we've got this new philosophy, postmodernism, that kind of has taken over, which to boil it, boil it down, sees pretty much everything as a social construct. So it rejects something really fundamental historically for the left, which is a, a materialist view of the world. And so things have turned upside down where it's become radical to say things like biology is immutable and not something that you can just identify yourself out of. So that's kind of the foundation, I think. And then you mix that in with real social justice concerns. Um, These things always start from real genuine problems that need to be addressed. But those social justice concerns got twisted to be focused on identity politics and not on class. And then I think if you take those things together and then you kind of mix into that a new view of speech itself, which sees speech more and more in terms of harm and, um, that it's the same thing as physical violence. I think that's that's kind of the key problem. Mm. And so I think it comes out of the universities, different social activist groups, and then it's all kind of being incubated in this 
neoliberalism and privatization of everything everything under the sun, which has been going on for 30 plus years. And then I think another key thing is that this movement, instead of looking like a challenge to the powers, that the establishment that the left has always been against or purported to be against, that establishment has, has kind of hijacked this whole movement. And, and uh, the, the left is just divided and bickering and it, it doesn't, it's not challenging power. It's just, it as a, as a genuine challenge to power, it doesn't exist anymore. Um, I mean, I, I've, I find there's a lot, yeah, a lot to agree with there. I, <laughs> I wonder too, I wondered whether sort of deindustrialization de- of the West has played a part in um, the power of the working class is, is reduced when you don't really have a, a big blue-collar productive working class and um, the left without its traditional base perhaps. But Well, yeah. in the US, you know, the Democratic Party used to represent the working class and now it's the professional class. It's the party of the professional class. So we have, you know, the shrinking middle class, which has kind of been going downhill, and a disappearing working class in terms of having an independent voice. So, yeah, all these things. So the the the, the professional class is populated by this same group that comes out of the universities the liberal left, it's basically controlled by the liberal left. So this this new ideology is, has just captured the organizations, the academia. I think that one of the things that sort of stands out for sort of traditional leftists is the, the way it's embraced by the establishment, which, you know, immediately alerts us to the fact this is, this is not, um, this is not a challenging of the system, is it? It's a, uh, it's something kind of different going on. Um, it should it should alert people. You you would think that, you know, when the big arms manufacturers like Raytheon and the state security agencies and you know every big corporation is pouring money into your group or your organizations, um, you are not their enemy. And are you are you referring to organizations like? Uh, Black Lives Matter because I mean, didn't they? Yeah, they seem to absolutely every single major corporation has been just pouring money into that into BLM. So it it's not um, it's nothing that's challenging power. Mm. I mean, BLM is a, of course that's a whole conversation because you have to be very careful to separate the social justice goals of BLM. And most of the people who really believe in it, and perhaps the organization itself, which has raised lots of questions. Yes, yes. So uh, one of the things that sort of come out of this whole kind of clash with um, a large part of the left not supporting free speech is they do tend to um, caricature proponents of free speech as um, free speech absolutists. And uh, you've written a bit about this. Do you want to talk about sort of what what your view is on this? I mean, how you respond to that accusation of, um, you know, because they will say things like, "Yes, well, I'm, we're all in favour of speech, but we're, we're not in favour of 
free speech absolutism. Yeah, I mean that that's a it's a it's just a term free speech absolutist to discredit proponents of free speech without engaging in the issues. So it's it seems pretty clear that speech is powerful or else it wouldn't be such a big issue and the to to think that it can't do harm is 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 totally naive. I, I mean just think of bullying anybody who knows someone or has experienced bullying knows that speech can be harmful. And we have other examples where dehumanizing language can lead to genocide, like in Rwanda. So if you listen to people like Nadine Strossen, who was president of the ACLU, someone like her who who spent their entire careers thinking about free speech and are their huge proponents of free speech, they don't call themselves free speech absolutists. Um, rather, what they focus on is the question of where do you draw the lines about speech and where do you, you know, what speech should be allowed and supported and where do you draw the line? You know, what speech should be suppressed or, or forbidden? So, you know, they're, the simplest argument that I think it's important to keep in mind is that speech, it, it's not the same as physical violence. And that's, that's where our thinking gets really muddied because the effect of speech, even though it can be harmful, it depends on who is hearing it. So think of, uh, you know, a stick, a stick doesn't care whose uh, whose head it cracks open, it's going to have the same effect no matter who it strikes. But speech is completely different than that. So if you think of blasphemy, blasphemy is this great example because it just, it just crystallizes all the issues and makes them really clear. So identical speech can be experienced in exactly opposite ways depending on who's saying it and who's hearing it. And then the question is always going to be who decides, who decides what should be allowed, who decides what's, you know, harmful blasphemy, who decides what's just a expression of their beliefs. And that's the big question. That's the question that, you know, that's, and when you get into this huge area where there's, 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 a lot to be debated. You know, there's gray areas where speech may be harmful. Maybe it, it's uh, more important that it be allowed. But to have the good faith debate, you have to start from separating it from the idea of physical violence. Yes. And I guess that's the, the difficulty with the sort of extreme postmodernism that denies material reality and everything is a narrative and therefore... Um, they, they, like as you've said, they, they equate uh, words with physical violence. Um, you've written an interesting, a very interesting article on plebity, which I'd encourage people to read, and it's entitled "On Who Decides What We Are Allowed to Say." And you make the point that as a society, we've handed over our right to make these decisions to a handful of tech lords and their money. It's like, how did? How did this happen? So I'm old enough to actually remember um, 
sort of firsthand witness of, of how things started. And back in 1993, 94, the beginning of the, the public internet. And it's not the technology, it's, it's, it's how it developed. Because in the beginning of the internet, um, there was a huge pushback against anything that resembled commercial speech. And the, the nerds or the founding fathers, whatever you want to call them, who developed the internet, they really wanted it to be open and free of regulation, commercialization of any kind. And there was a really strong sense that that was, it was a special place and that had to be protected. And, uh, you know, the atmosphere was ferocious. There were, there were discussion boards or forums that were ancestors of, of social media. And if you said anything at all that, that could be interpreted as, promoting a business um, or some commercial interest, you'd get flamed. And this was our commons. This was our, this was our, you know, our, our, our place of our public square, a place of discourse. Although the, the word commons was never used and it was, it wasn't legal. It was a cultural sense. Um, but it was also growing up in the same social context of neoliberalism and deregulation and so what happened is, naturally, the most self-serving and unscrupulous of the users took advantage of uh, opportunities, the capitalist opportunities, and we know who they are now. You know, that's, that's our billionaire class. That's Bezos and others. And so everything about the tech companies, it, just, it, just, it was just in sync with all the general trends that were happening where we stopped trying to break up monopolies and they grew so fast, faster than politicians or the public could keep up to understand it, let alone to regulate it. And that worked to their advantage and they've grown into the monster, which is what it is now. There's, there's a great book on this that if people haven't read, I'd recommend it. It's, um, Surveillance Capitalism by Shoshana Zuboff. And uh, she kind of describes this whole process, how, how unprecedented it really is. I, I guess, yeah, on the scale. And do you think there are no sort of historical equivalents either? I mean, I'm guessing, you know, when the printing press started out, um, it was a sort of free-for-all for a long time. Uh, once they got to sort of mass-produced things. It was a period of a free-fall, wasn't it, before journalism got established as a, a sort of more professional project. But, yeah, this this is definitely on a massive scale. And Yeah, I don't, think it's, I don't think it's different in kind necessarily. As you say, you know, we had the printing press. We've had other kinds of, of um, authoritarianism and surveillance. I mean, look at Stasi, you know, they were pretty efficient without, without any internet, but just the scale of it and, and the, how it drills down into every single aspect of our lives. It's, it's completely unprecedented. And well, so now really our public square is on the internet is through social media. We don't really go down to, um, I mean, there's still places like, Speaker's Corner at Hyde Park, but that's not where, and, mm-hmm. and there are still public hall meetings, but the main venue now is online, isn't it? And 
So you say it's been it's been privatized, and in your article, you say that public discourse has been privatized, and really we've given up our ability to debate or even understand the real issues of free speech and its necessary limits. So I'm I'm interested. What do you think the necessary limits are? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I think there's there's. <laughs> There's two spheres that need to be separated a little. So there's government censorship and government limits on certain kinds of free speech. And in general, I think we agree on on certain types of speech that that we don't allow um, direct calls to violence, child pornography, defamation. On social networks, where we spend all our time, um, it's a whole different thing. And the real problem is is um, it's what we what you could call trolling. So it's it's just the the overall toxic environment that's created um, where people engage in, in in ad hominem total you know personal attacks instead of engaging on issues. So I mean naturally that's a <laughs> humans are are tempted are tempted into that um, just naturally, but. Uh, there's something really pernicious about the even the design of the of the 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 tech platforms because the, it it rewards trolling and discourages substan- substantial substantive exchanges mm-hmm. so i think that before you can really get into what the limits are i mean i would say you know well people need to understand the difference between ad hominem attacks and substantive exchanges on the issues but that's a really general concept i mean the specific limits have to be debated they're always going to be up for grabs so to speak with with all these areas that are shifting but we need a good faith debate and we can't talk it's 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 having that it's the ability to have that debate that's been taken away from us because I talked about the commons in that article. So the whole idea of a successful commons is that it needs rules. But the rules have to be democratically decided. Everybody has to agree on them. There has to be a process for debating the rules, a process for agreeing on the rules. And without that, you just have... um, centralized control and that's not free speech i think we we see it, it seems rather arbitrary too that the control that exists today say on twitter people just get banned or dumped um they don't know quite why or they might have fallen foul of um some new kind of woke ruling but yeah, there's no sort of recourse often, um, and and at the same time, a whole lot of very outrageous stuff can continue. That seems totally arbitrary, at least from where we sit. Uh, you know, it's based on algorithms that have been designed. Who knows how, and um, who knows what the rules are? We we know at the end of the chain who benefits, so it's done to benefit the profits of the corporation. But other than that, we really don't know. Hmm. 
So, I mean, you've, you've talked a bit about the the traditional commons. For instance, in in Europe, there's areas of land where traditionally people would have worked the land together and harvested it together, and as well as you know have their private plot and so on. And you're so are you sort of proposing that as one model for counteracting the corporate power? Like, how would yeah, how would you see that? that model of um, approach being applied in practice? How do we get from the idea to the to the practical point of it? Yeah, well, it's, it's about ownership. So it's all about who has ownership of the commons. So um, who has a stake? And in order for us commons to be successful, in this case, a public square, which would be the commons, um, we need to own it together. So there's no other, there's no other way. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, we're we're just customers right now. We're 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 pumping billions into these tech companies, and um, we have no say in what takes place beyond. Um, our role as customers. So sometimes they they do get swayed by public opinion or occasionally uh, governments try and impose some regulations. But do you think government regulation is is an answer? I mean, I don't think you're suggesting that particularly, are you? Um, no, I think we definitely not. Mm. <laughs> I mean, that, that's another form of top-down control. Yeah, yeah. So are you sort of thinking that we would need then for more and more people to say, listen, we want, we don't want our platforms to be narrowed down or controlled by the owners of those platforms? Yeah, absolutely. I was going to say, what what was your thoughts on, you know, the, the excitement around Elon Musk buying Twitter? And it's not clear yet whether he is or not. Um I mean, for some, in some ways, it looked like okay. There's someone who supports free speech, but would would that be? Would we be better off with an Elon Musk uh, ownership model, or does that not change anything? Yeah, I think. Well, I don't think it would change anything. I I think Elon Musk is a great example because he's like the, I don't know, People Magazine billionaire. He says he supports free speech, but his track record with Tesla and his own business doesn't really support that. And the idea of looking to another billionaire as our savior is really looking in the wrong direction. You know, uh, Elon Musk will support free speech as long as it suits his personal goals, and that's it. Well, I saw, I noticed in your article too. You talked about we need like a citizens' debate on speech, and um, and what and maybe out of the citizens' debate we can figure out what limits need to be imposed, and you know where the boundaries might be. How I'm just wondering, like how how do we do that in today's world? Because in the past. For the left, you know, there were traditional working class organisations uh, that were around and functioning, and you might have gone to them to, you know, let's have a discussion in the trade union movement or um, in the women's movement and so on. But now, I mean, the 
in New Zealand anyway, the traditional trade union movement is not supporting free speech. Is that what's the situation in the US with the unions? Are they standing up for free speech? Well, the unions have been crushed. So there's there's some signs of maybe new life, some positive signs. You know, we've seen we've seen uh, some things happening at Amazon or Starbucks where there's been some grassroots worker activity, but overall the power of the unions it's it's just it's just gone. It's been it's completely crushed. It's it's just been part of that neoliberal deregulation process that we've been living through for for decades. Mm-hmm. And I noticed with Amazon, they're, they're automating anyway, so there, there may not be any humans. There won't be any workers. Any, yeah, right, yeah. Exactly. No, I think, it. you know, to just sort of take up what you were saying, but just sort of go past it a little bit in terms of just the question about free speech. You know, there's the issue of free speech, but before we can really have really free speech and have the debate about free speech, we need a whole different society around it. So if we're going to have a commons where free speech would be respected, we need a whole new society. So as a leftist, you know, that's, (laughs) that's how we think. So do we support revolution or what are we looking for? So my personal feeling is we're not going to see anything like the revolutions of the past. It's just impossible. You know, there won't be a, another 1789 French revolution or a Russian revolution in 1917. But what, if we start to think in terms of our power as consumers and think about reclaiming the commons by going after the underbelly of capitalism rather than trying to confront it head on. You know, we have enormous strength as consumers, but we have to start, I would say the bottom line is we have to, we have to recognize spending our money is a political act. And I would say it, it's simple. We need a, a consumer revolt. We need to stop funding the oligarchs, stop giving them our dollars. We need to stop passively going along with this transfer of wealth where it's like we, everybody is paying a tax to Amazon every month. And uh, that's where all our wealth is going. We're happy about it. So I would say, why don't we start thinking about something totally different where we use the model the capitalist model, you know, we, we can see Silicon Valley. Why not have a, we'll call it a people's version of Silicon Valley? So um, a, I'll use the word crowdfunded, even though that's sort of fallen out of fashion a little bit, but a crowdfunded power center where people put in money and it fuels alternatives to the big tech companies, for example with all of them, Google, Facebook, Amazon, Twitter. And we use that, we use that money, those dollars to, to, to support these, these companies. You know, there are some alternative software companies already, software enterprises, but they don't get support at all. They're just, they're, 
they're almost, they're just, there's nobody there. Well, very few. You know, our, our money is, it's political. How we spend is political. That's, that's the key thing. So, um, and then just, just to circle around and, 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 and put the period on the end, the end of that sentence, this, this is an idea that, that, that can be, that can work for everybody. I mean, you don't have to be a leftist. You don't have to be on the right or on the left to support this idea. It's, it's totally beyond ideology. Right. So as sort of a consumer's movement to have the public sphere back, the, the public square back in the hands of the public. Yeah, reclaim free speech, reclaim the commons. Well, that's probably a, a good note for us to um, wind up on today. Thank you, Mark. Um, I'm, I'm looking forward to I hope we can speak again and um, flesh out more of these ideas. I think Plebity's doing great work, and it's, it's really – I would encourage listeners to check out the website, which is plebity, P-L-E-B-I-T-Y dot org, because there are great articles there and a lot of thought-provoking stuff. Thank you very much, Daphne. Oh, pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Free Speech Union podcast. If you would like to learn more about us or find out how you can get involved or support, you can head on over to fsu.nz or check us out on Facebook and Twitter. Ka kite anō.